The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Now, before we get started, let's go ahead and bow our heads together in prayer, remembering that the Holy Spirit is the one who indwells each and every believer. And when we have confessed or acknowledged our sins to God the Father, then we are immediately cleansed, purified, forgiven of all our sins, and we're back in fellowship. The Holy Spirit then controls us. The Scripture says we're filled with the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit then uh, empowers us and enables us to, to learn His Word through the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. So as we prepare to study God's Word, let's uh, take a few moments in silent prayer to admit our sins to God the Father in private, and then we'll pray. Father, again, we thank You for this tremendous opportunity and privilege to study Your Word, that we live in a country where we have this freedom, where we can gather together, assemble together to study Your Word, and that we have the freedom to talk about it, to teach it, and to apply it in our lives. And Father, now as we come to Your Word this, this final night of our time together, in our study of prayer, that You would just take all of these principles that we've learnt, been learning about prayer, that the Holy Spirit would just drive them deep into our souls, and that we would be reminded of them as we leave here to apply these things continually in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, back when I started, I said that if anybody had any questions, that if they uh, would write them down, uh, go ahead and put them up here on the front table. And one of the questions that we had was on John 14, 14. So I need to pull my glasses out now so I can read my Bible. But turn with me to John 14, 14 while I answer this particular question. We have seen that we are to pray to God the Father. We address our prayers to God the Father, and we'll see a little bit about why that is in our study tonight. But we're to pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus, which does not necessarily mean that every time we pray, we recite this little formula in the name of Jesus. It means that Jesus Christ's work on the cross is the basis for our prayers. We come to God on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, and we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, by means of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to learn a little bit more about what that means tonight as well. We're going to begin by answering this question on John 14, 14. In my New American Standard Bible, it says, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And if you look at the context, starting in verse 13, Jesus said, And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, this is another aspect of prayer that we'll get to tonight, so this all ties together and makes for a very fitting introduction that the purpose of our prayer is the glorification of God. And remember the other night I said that prayer should be God-centered and not man-centered. And one way in which we can keep our prayers focused on the glory of God and God-centered and not man focused on the fact that it's, it's God-centered and not man-centered is to ask ourselves the question, are our prayer requests designed to bring glory to God or to our, ourselves? Now, in verse 14 we have what is called a textual problem. Now, I'm sure that you have been taught well about textual problems. It is not the problem that we only have 95% of the Greek New Testament. The New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek. And Koine Greek was the lingua franca of the ancient world, especially the eastern part of the Mediterranean. And we have many, many manuscripts, not just the New Testament, but many other secular manuscripts that were written in Koine Greek. So we have a very good understanding of the uh, Greek language, the language in which the New Testament was written. And so when we study the New Testament, we should always go back and study it in the original language because it's, then we're going to gain a much greater insight than we can from, from translations. And I make it a principle in my own study to always study from the original Hebrew, original Aramaic and portions of the Old, Old Testament or the uh, original Greek. And in, a, um, in, in any good uh, critical text, it's called a critical text, in the... Um, uh, margins, there will be notations about uh, textual problems. For example, we have a wealth of manuscripts that go back even as far as, as about 120 A.D., which is roughly only about 25 years or so after the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. 
And uh, we have some, uh, some fragments from uh, John that go back that far, which attest to the veracity of our, of our text. And by comparing all these hundreds, in fact thousands of different manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, every now and then there are differences. Now, about 95% of the differences relate to grammar, just minor little grammatical things, uh, or word changes from one word to a synonym, and they don't change the, the thrust or meaning of the text. You have various other things. For example, in a scriptorium in the Middle Ages when they would make copies of Scripture, you would have a room like this and there would be a man up front who would read from his manuscript. And then you would have various uh, monks, scribes, sitting out here at their desks. And he would, much as many of us did when we were in grade school, he would read the text out loud and they would write it down and take dictation. And every now and then they would make a mistake. They wouldn't hear something right, leave out a word, add a word something like this, and this then would accidentally enter into Scripture. So we have, so I say, instead of having 98% of the New Testament, we have about 105% of the New Testament, and we have to compare manuscripts sometimes to get at the, what we think is the original reading. And uh, we know from Scripture, number one, as we're going to see tonight, that Jesus is our intercessor. The Holy Spirit also intercedes for us. You do not pray to the intercessor, for as I taught the ladies this morning in class, if you pray to the intercessor, then before long what happens is you look for someone to intercede for you with the person you're praying to. This is what happened historically when uh, Jesus became the focus of prayer. Then you needed someone else to intercede with Jesus for you. So Mary became the one you prayed to to intercede with Jesus. And then as Mary became more and more elevated, now you need other saints to pray to so that they will intercede for you with Mary and then with Jesus and the chain just gets longer and longer. So Jesus is in the ministry of intercession as is the Holy Spirit. They're not the ones we pray to. Jesus taught us to pray to God the Father and not to Himself. So why does this verse say, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it? And that is because the word me is not in many manuscripts. The textual evidence is pretty well split and it looks as if the me were added. On the basis of, of theological comparison, I would say that since there's no other place in all of Scripture that says we're to address our prayers to Jesus, and this is the only place that that makes this reading uh, very dubious, but also the attestation in the, in the record also makes it uh, uh, somewhat dubious. So uh, whenever you have a, uh, a textually doubtful passage, you never base a doctrine on it. Never. That's always wrong to base a doctrine on a textual variant, especially one that probably isn't there. So this passage probably reads, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. It's just a repetition of what was said in the previous verse. And it is not talking about asking Jesus in, in specifically in terms of prayer. <clears throat> As we have looked at Scripture the last several Bible classes, and we've been talking about prayer. We finished up yesterday, or last night, talking about the various aspects of prayer. That prayer is composed of various elements. There's confession, there's adoration and worship, there's thanksgiving. We'll use the acronym CATS, confession, adoration, thanksgiving, and supplication. Supplication was where we ended last night, and supplication is divided into two subcategories. One is intercession. Intercession is where one person prays on behalf of another person and the other category, excuse me, is of, of supplication is petition. And that is where we have various requests for ourselves that we pray to God. Now, the, by way of introduction on intercession, I want to look at the intercession of Jesus Christ. Let's begin with a definition. The current ministry of Jesus Christ in heaven whereby he never ceases to petition the Father on behalf of believers, especially with reference to strengthening their weaknesses in times of temptation. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was buried before sundown. He spent three days and three nights in the grave, and then he rose bodily from the grave. Forty days later, he ascended to heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. That is referred to by the theological term session. It is referred to as the present session of heaven, uh, se session of Christ in heaven 
And part of his role during his session is to pray as our high priest. He prays for us. So this is the current ministry of Jesus Christ in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, uh, whereby he never ceases to petition the Father on behalf of believers. So you know that right now Jesus Christ is praying for you as a particular individual and every single day of your life Jesus Christ is praying on your behalf especially with reference to strengthening your weaknesses in times of temptation. John 17, 11. You know, that's a real challenge to us when we get tempted and we want to yield to know that right at that very moment Jesus is praying for us that we won't yield to that temptation. I think that's rather convicting at times. Jesus said to His disciples in John 17, 11, And I am no more in the world. And He's praying to God the Father. John 17 is really the... The, 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 the true Lord's Prayer. It is Jesus' prayer to God the Father. The Lord, the, what's called the Lord's Prayer in, in Matthew 6 and other passages is really the disciples' prayer. They said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus gave them the little prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And each aspect of that, it's really a teaching technique. And Jesus was teaching them different aspects of prayer as He went through that. That you address your prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. That's a focus on adoration. And line by line, through the disciples' prayer, we see the elements that should be included in in prayer. But in John 17, we have Jesus Christ's intercessory prayer for the disciples and with reference to church-age believers. And this is the model of His intercession even now. And I, He prays to God the Father, and I am no more in the world, and yet they, that is, these believers, the disciples here, and those who follow, they themselves are in the world, And I come to Thee, Holy Father, keep them in Thy name, which the name which Thou hast given Me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And in John 17, 15, I do not ask Thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, that is, the the tempter, Satan himself. So Christ prays on behalf of us, especially in relation to our weaknesses, And our unity, and remember this, in Scripture when it says that we are to be unified as believers, it is not unity for the sake of unity. It is always unity in faith. And faith has two connotations in Scripture. It's the faith that we have subjectively, which is our belief in Christ or our belief in the Scriptures. And it also has an objective meaning uh, referring to what is believed or doctrine. And unity is on the basis of faith. It's never at the expense of doctrine. This is so popular with ecumenical movements today is let's not worry about our doctrinal differences. That's After all, that's just doctrine. And doctrine really doesn't matter. What matters is that we're all brothers in Christ and let's just hold hands and have our little emotional experience together. And, And that's as far from the Scriptures as you can possibly get. Because the Scriptures teach that unity is on the basis of doctrine. And and Paul states it in 1 Corinthians and in other places that doctrine is always going to divide believers, those who are growing and maturing from those who just want to coast along and they're not really concerned with the spiritual life. Unity in the body of Christ in this life, on this earth, is always on the basis of doctrine. So Jesus prays that we may be kept as one. Christ's intercession is based on His finished work at the cross. The last thing that Jesus said on the cross was tetelestai, the perfect uh, form of the verb teleao, which means it is finished. The same thing we would write across the bottom of a bill, paid in full. Every payment for sin was done on the cross. You can't add anything to it. Jesus Christ paid for every sin of every human being. He paid for the worst sins of the Ayatollah Khomeini. He prayed for the worst sins of Saddam Hussein. He prayed for all the sins of Adolf Hitler and for uh, Stalin and every mass murderer in history. Every single sin in human history was paid for on the cross. God the Father in His omniscience knew every single sin that would be committed by every single human being billions and billions and billions of years ago. And so He's not surprised when these things happen and He poured those sins out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And Christ paid for them in full so that the issue no longer is what did you do, the issue is what do you believe in reference to Jesus Christ. So His intercession, having completed uh, atonement on the cross, He ascended to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven as our high priest. And this is part of His ministry. 
Romans 8.34 is the key pa- one of the key passages for the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. Why don't you turn there and we'll just stay in Romans 8 while we're there in reference to the intercessory ministry of the Holy Spirit as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. And there we read, Who is the one who condemns? And that picks up the context. Jesus Christ is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So this is a reference to the present ministry of Jesus Christ in heaven, who is the one who intercedes for us because of His completed work on the cross. Another key passage that relates to His intercessory ministry is Hebrews 7:24 and 25, which reads, But He, on the other hand, because He abides forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Hence also He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus Christ always lives to make intercession for you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a member of the royal family of God. And Jesus Christ prays for you continually, day in and day out. If Christ is continually and actively involved in interceding for each and every believer, shouldn't we also make intercessory prayer a priority in our own spiritual lives? Prayer often is rationalized and neglected by believers, and yet the emphasis in Scripture is that prayer is to be the highest, highest priority. If you read through the life of Christ in the Gospels, it's amazing how many times it says that Jesus departed from His disciples and went to a quiet place in the wilderness to pray, to get alone and to pray. Over and over again, you see how important it was for Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, the second person of the Trinity, living out in hypostatic union, His life on the earth, He prayed over and over again. He was perfect. How much more important it is for us to have a life of prayer and intercession. Not only does Jesus Christ, in His role as our High Priest, intercede for us, but so does the Holy Spirit. We've looked at the intercession of Jesus Christ and now the intercession, intercessory ministry of the Holy Spirit. By way of definition, this is the ministry of God the Holy Spirit whereby He identifies the believer's weaknesses and petitions God on behalf of the believer. Because of the Holy Spirit's omniscience, He correctly translates and strengthens our petitions even when we are completely ignorant of what we ought to say or how we ought to frame our petitions. So this is the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, whereby He identifies the believer's weaknesses and petitions God on the believer's behalf. Because of His omniscience, the Holy Spirit correctly translates and strengthens our petitions, even when we are completely ignorant of what we ought to say. This is in Romans 8, 26 and 27. Now, just to give you a little context, back in verse 22, we read, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And this relates to the fact that all of creation is under the curse of sin. Now, the reason I go to verse 22 is because the word groan is used there. Now, when you go outside and and you cock your ear, do you hear the earth groaning? No. This is a figure of speech just talking about the suffering that is involved in all of the created order as a consequence of sin. So we come to verse 26. We read, And in the same way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, also helps our weaknesses. That's why we have in our definition, He identifies the believer's weaknesses. And the word here for weakness is a word we'll become familiar with a little later on. And that is the word asthenes. This is a Greek word, A-S-T-H-E-N-E-S. Asthenes. And it has to do, its basic root meaning is that which is weak. In some contexts, it refers to physical weakness or illness. This is often used to describe illness in the Gospels. Although there's one particular passage, in fact it's a prayer passage, where it refers to spiritual weakness. When Jesus is in the... Uh, 
the Garden of Gethsemane, before he goes to the cross, he's talking to the disciples. He tells them not to fall asleep. And he goes off to pray and he comes back and they fall falling asleep. And he says, the spirit, the, the flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak. Ostinates. It's not a sick, physical sickness. It's a, it's a discouragement sometimes. Uh, depression is spiritual inability. So we can be physical or it can refer to a spiritual inability or failure. In this particular passage, it's probably talking about spiritual weaknesses, especially in times of testing or temptation. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. And so often we know that this is the case. We just don't know what specifically we should be praying for in some matters. But nevertheless, we should be praying. Don't use that as an excuse to neglect your prayer life and say, well, somehow God will just work it out and act like some kind of fatalist. We should pray. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. With what? Groanings too deep for words. Now, you'll always run into some Pentecostal, some charismatic who's going to go to this verse and say, well, this is a spirit language. But remember, this is a, a groaning that, number one, cannot be heard. It's like the groaning of the creation. That's why I went to verse 22. This is an, an inaudible groaning. It's talking about something that is, that is very deep. And it's a groaning that's too deep for words. It's inarticulate. And what this is describing is that, that something that moves us very, very deeply and we just don't know how to pray. The Holy Spirit does and He prays for us because He is the one, in verse 27, who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know from 1 John 5, 13 and 14 that if we pray according to the will of God, He hears us. And if He hears us, we know that we have the petitions that we ask of Him. So here we find in Romans 8, 26 and 27 a tremendous passage about how the Holy Spirit works in and through our prayers to correctly frame them and translate them and present them uh, to the throne of grace, even when we don't know precisely what to pray for or how to pray. This is not talking about some audible spirit language. It's an inaudible language. The Holy Spirit does not take over your responsibilities to prayer, but He merely uh, improves the effectiveness of your prayers. Now, having said that, we need to talk about our own intercessory ministry for others. What are we to pray for? As believers, when we, um, when we go through uh, our prayers, we're to pray for others, we're to pray for ourselves. So what, should, what are the scriptural categories of prayer? What should we pray for? Well, first of all, we need to pray for personal needs. Personal needs. One example of this is Philippians chapter 4, 6 through 7. This is a great promise. Let's turn there. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. We're in Romans. Go past Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. So, uh, Philippians comes before Colossians, after Ephesians. Verse 4, this verse you ought to have underlined, if not memorized. If you have a tendency, if your area of weakness and your sin nature is to worry, then you should have this memorized and recite it over and over again before you go to sleep at night. Be anxious for nothing. Now, if we were to put that in the vernacular, we'd say, quit worrying about anything. Don't worry. Stop it. Now. Period. Worry is a sin. Anxiety is a sin. Being anxious over things is a sin. Be anxious for nothing. Contrast. But in everything, not some things, but everything, by prayer and supplication. So what should you do when you start to worry? Pray. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Remember what we talked about, the elements of prayer last night. We have all these things. Focus on this situation you're worried about. Thank God for that situation because for whatever reason, focus on, on, on thanksgiving to God. Pray about it. And let your requests be made known to God. Express your needs. And the promise is, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts, that is, your innermost part of your mind and your noose, in Christ Jesus. And remember, we talked about this the first night, that in the Greek, you have the word cardia and the word nous. Nous is the word generally translated mind, and cardia is the word generally translated heart. 
And heart sometimes refers to the physical organ, but often we use it metaphorically to refer to the innermost part of something. And so I diagram this, that in the mentality of the soul, there are two areas. The innermost part is the heart. This is where our deep convictions lie. This is what needs to be totally renewed by the teaching of the Word of God. And out here, this is where we hold what the Bible calls epinosis doctrine, or full knowledge. Epinosis. E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S. And the outer circle is the mind, or the newt. Often what happens there is we just hold gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. And that's just where academic knowledge resides. Now, we all have to learn it academically before it's transferred by faith, by the Holy Spirit, into epinosis, that innermost conviction of our soul. Nothing gets there. You can't learn about any subject in the world without first learning it academically, no matter what it is. You can't apply... I'll always run into Christians who say, well, you know, you teach too much. You know, there's just too much of an emphasis on teaching and learning and we just don't need all that knowledge. It just becomes academic knowledge. It only becomes academic knowledge if you're not growing by means of the Holy Spirit. If you stop at academic knowledge, of course that's all you're going to have. But you can't apply what you don't know. So you have to learn it first. And this is the staging area. First it has to be knowledge. Academic knowledge. And you have a choice at that point. Your volition kicks in. You either... Uh, accept it and make it part of your life, which is positive volition, or you exercise negative volition and you just leave it there as academic knowledge. If it becomes part of your life, then it enters into the heart, the innermost part of your mentality, where the Holy Spirit uses it and draws upon it in various situations where you then apply it, and in that process, you go through spiritual growth. So what we find here at the end of verse 6 is by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension guards the inner sanctum of your mentality, the heart, and your mind in Christ Jesus. We need to present our personal needs to God. We have another great promise just in the next column in my Bible, Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches, in glory in Christ Jesus. That's another great verse for you to have memorized and call upon and claim in times of difficulty. These promises give us the basis, a basis in prayer to lock our minds around these promises, especially if our emotions are getting out of control with fear and worry and anxiety. And as we focus on these promises, our emotions are stabilized and we can move forward by applying the doctrine that we know. This is not always easy. Paul had difficulty with this in his own life. Turn with me back about three books to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Somebody was asking me the other night, how long do you, do you persist in prayer? Well, you persist in prayer until you're sure that you have a no answer. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about a situation that he was in. He gives us the conclusion... In verse 7, he didn't know this when he went through the test. He knows this afterwards and he tells you where we're going to begin with. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, in other words, because of so much doctrine that God had revealed to Paul, the greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, in other words, now that he knows so much, in order to keep him from being arrogant about what he knew, he didn't know it because of his own effort, it was given to him by God's grace, In order to keep him from becoming arrogant, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, there's all sorts of speculations to what this thorn in the flesh was, and people talk about this thing and that thing and the other thing, but the key here is the word messenger. A messenger from Satan. The word in the Greek is angelos. Whenever you have two gammas together for you Greek students, it's always pronounced like an NG. Angelos. Angel. An angel from Satan. What it do we call an angel from Satan? We call an angel from Satan a demon. So there is a particular demon assigned to Paul who is given free reign to test him in certain ways. Now Paul is going through this suffering from this, uh, this thorn demon. 
and in response he prays. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So he doesn't just pray once, he prays three times. And finally he gets an answer. So he stops praying. The answer is no. See, God always answers prayer. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says maybe, and sometimes he says no. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. This is a powerful doctrine. He doesn't say that my grace is sufficient for you until um, Freud comes along and gives you psychotherapy. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected or matured, the word teleos, teleos again, which we saw the same root word Jesus used, for it is finished on the cross, for power is matured or completed in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults. These are probably the ways in which he was tested. With insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He learns the, mess, the, the principle of humility. But he prays, he prays, he's going through this test. It's fine to pray when you're going through these tests. You don't know what God's answer is. But when God says no, it's time to stop praying and apply the principle that God's want, God wants you to apply. We pray for personal needs. Secondly, we pray for our nation. We pray for national leaders. We pray for state leaders, county leaders, city officials, school board. We pray for military personnel. All of this is found in 1 Timothy or an application for 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes to Timothy, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Not just believers, but all men. Then he gets specific. For kings, we would, in our society, that's the rulers, the administrative personnel, congressional leaders, everyone who's in authority. For kings and all who are in authority. And what's the purpose for this? The purpose for this is that we might lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. Now, godliness is one of those holy words in Scripture that sounds really wonderful and make us lift our eyes to the heavens because we're so spiritual and nobody knows what in the world we're really talking about. What is godliness? The Greek word is eusebeia. E-U-S-E-B-E-I-A. And probably the best understanding of this, best way to translate it for us that we'll understand it is our spiritual life. Because in our spiritual life we are emulating Christ. That's the goal, is to become Christ-like in our character. So by becoming Christ-like, we demonstrate certain attributes related to God. That's what godliness means, is God-likeness. But that's one of those words that's bandied about so much it sort of loses its meaning. So, Godliness is our spiritual life. We, are, we pray for these people in order that we might be left alone. So we can have Bible class, so that we can meet freely and we can disseminate the Word. We can send missionaries out around the world and that we can be unhindered by governmental interference. We pray that we might lead a, a, a tranquil and quiet life in all spirituality and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the purpose for this prayer is basically so that Bible study, evangelism, missionary activity, all can be conducted apart from governmental interference. We need to be left alone. If government is not working correctly, then believers will not have the freedom or the opportunity to grow spiritually. I had a great example of that when I went over to Belarus several years ago and saw the tremendous difficulties and have watched the difficulties that, uh, that Jody and others with Russia Village Missions have had as the uh, <coughs> government there has become more and more restrictive on their activities. And now there's only one American left there. They were just too visible and they were really becoming uh, persecuted. In fact, Steve told me that they had brought over a, uh, uh, <coughs> one of the visitors there, Americans had brought him an electronic testing device for, for electronic bugs. And he had three bugs in his bed, in his bedpost. He had bugs all, every room had five or six uh, listening devices in it. And uh, 
So he, everything he did was being well recorded by whatever they call the KGB these days. But the purpose for our prayers is so that we have this freedom. <clears throat> Some of the greatest periods of evangelism in all of human history have occurred during times of tremendous, tremendous governmental stability and peace. One of these was under a very pagan government under the Roman Empire. The period of the Antonine Caesars, which extended from the early part of the uh, second century, from about 105 up to about 175-180 A.D., was a period of one of the uh, of tremendous tranquility. The uh, <clears throat> legions of Rome had marched all over Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, and had secured a, a, a tremendous peace called the Pax Romana. And most uh, historians of the ancient world of classical history would say that this is the great, one of the greatest periods of world peace at all time. And it was during that time that what happened? That Christianity exploded throughout the Roman Empire. The pagan government uh, had their, their soldiers out all over, all over the Roman Empire securing peace so that people could travel uh, unhindered on the, on the famous roadways of the Roman Empire and carry the gospel from town to town. And hundreds of thousands of people became believers during that time. Another great time was under the uh, British Empire. Notice both were under empires. I got in a discussion with someone not long ago because I said imperialism is not as bad as it's cracked up to be because it was under some of these great empires that the Word of God had its greatest, greatest impact around the world. The British sent out many missionaries that went along with their armies. Now, that's not saying that everything was perfect. That's not saying that there wasn't much abuse. And, and other things, but it is saying that under <clears throat> the peace that was brought by those armies, the missionaries were to, went to, to China, to India, all over Africa, many, many places around the world carrying the gospel. And because of the British army in the 19th century, there are going to be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in heaven because of the missionaries that went with them who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to pray for our government leaders that we can have peace and stability so that the gospel can go forth. How can we pray for our leaders? Well, one example from Scripture is we can pray for the conversion of rulers that are already in office. One example of this in the Old Testament is from Nebuchadnezzar. Don't just pray that God would kick the guy out of office. Pray that he would become converted, that he would become a believer and that he would focus on doctrine. Nebuchadnezzar became a believer after seven horrendous years of divine discipline. Remember, he was so arrogant that he looked out from his city walls on all that he had built and thought that he was as great as God. God struck him dumb like an animal right there and for the next seven years he crawled around like a madman, psychotic, out in the fields eating grass. And when he came to, he recognized the sovereignty of, of the Lord and I believe at that time Nebuchadnezzar became a believer. It says in Daniel 4, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? He recognized who God was and became a believer. So we need to pray for the conversion of our leaders. Remembering, too, that God is sovereign and that Jesus Christ controls history. No matter what happens out there, Jesus Christ is still in control. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. doesn't matter whether he's a Democrat or a Republican or a Communist or a Muslim leader. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Um, passages that outline God's will for rulers are found in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. There we know that the ruler should read and study God's word daily. 1 Kings 3. 1 Kings 3. 7 through 9. Don't bother trying to look these up. I'm just giving you some references. We find Solomon's prayer for wisdom as a result of his daily study of the Word. Uh, other passages you should look at at a later time would be Micah 6, 8 and Jeremiah 23, 4 through 5 where the emphasis is on 
the ruler and how he should act wisely and do righteousness and justice in the land. We can pray for godly advisors to the king. Even if he has rejected the gospel, we can pray that those around him would give him godly advice. One example is in the Old Testament. Genesis 41. Joseph was elevated to the second highest position in the land of Egypt. And he gave wise counsel to Pharaoh so that they were able, the nation was able to survive a horrendous famine. Nehemiah chapter 2 is another example. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And this is a title for this, what became, what was originally a wine taster, just to make sure the king wouldn't get poisoned. But if you trust this guy so much to test your wine to make sure you're not going to get poisoned, before long you began to consult him, and eventually that, that role had evolved into the, the second highest position in the land. The only person that had more power in Persia than Nehemiah was Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer, the second highest official in the land. He was a believer, but the king was not. Uh, Daniel's another example. He served under Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and others, and he was a, a well-known advisor uh, to the king. Philippians 4.22 gives us the example that there were various believers in Caesar's household. Various believers in the household of Caesar. So these rulers had believers around them. So we could pray that God would put uh, godly men in paths and godly men and women as advisors to political leaders, even if they are not, not believers. Okay, let's go to another thing that we can pray for. We need to uh, pray for wisdom and use prayer in our witnessing. Now, this morning I made the point that when we pray in witnessing, we should not frame our prayers that God... Please make so-and-so a believer. Because that's asking God to do something He can't do. He's never going to violate the free will and individual volition of a person. We need to frame our prayers such that God, I pray that someone would bring the gospel and present the gospel clearly to so-and-so. I pray that you would take them through certain circumstances in their life that would make them more receptive to the gospel. I pray that they would... They would be able to uh, listen to the gospel to these people, to these uh, unbelievers clearly. Paul says in Romans uh, 10, 1b, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So we need to be praying for those who are not saved. Another category of those that we uh, should be praying for are our enemies. Those who dislike us, hate us, persecute us, or mistreat us. Maybe somebody at work, maybe a boss, maybe an employer, whomever. Someone who is uh, distasteful to us or who has it in for us. Matthew 5:43 through 45 Jesus said, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is how you should behave if you are a child of God, in other words. You pray for those who persecute you. For He, that is God, causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So you should pray for them. Now another category is the sick. And this is a fun passage. I don't know that I have the time that I would really want you to go through this in excessive detail, but I want you to get the thrust of it. So let's turn to James chapter 5. A lot of little problem passages here. I've alluded to this in earlier sessions that we would come to a study of James 5, and now we're there. James chapter 5. Now, James is the earliest of all the New Testament books. When we were in Acts 4 the other day, I made the point of saying that in the early stages of the church, they did not have a formal uh, organizational structure yet. God had not revealed that yet. The, the epistles of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the so-called pastoral epistles had not been revealed yet or penned. In the early, early stages of the church, all they had were apostles. Then they chose some men like, like Stephen and Philip and others that would uh, aid the apostles in the distribution of, um, of, uh, of money to help out the, uh, the, the widows in the church and so that the apostles wouldn't be distracted by the administration and they could focus on what? Teaching doctrine and prayer. And that essentially is a model for the pastoral ministry. That's the priorities for the pastor. And the other groups, while they weren't deacons as such, 
That is a foreshadowing of the role and function of deacons. And that is to carry out the administrative function of the church so the pastor can focus his time on teaching, doctrine, and prayer and not be distracted by the day-to-day running of the church. Now, it wasn't until some time later that you began to talk about um, deacons and the term presbyteros or elders and episcopos or bishops. All these terms were synonymous. The pastor, the bishop, the elder. Same terms referring to the different functions of the same person. Now, that's a little background on the early stage of James. James 5.13 Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So right there we have our principle that if there's suffering, physical suffering, spiritual suffering, whatever it may be, we're to pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. That was the adoration aspect of our prayer that we talked about yesterday. And then, is anyone among you sick? Now, this is one of the most confusing passages because it is so poorly translated from the Greek. The question here is, is anyone among you sick? What's the word for sick? The word for sick is the word we saw earlier. I can get back to it. It may have been too long ago. Osthenes. Right here. Now, when we see the word osthenes, we have to look at the context. We have to ask the question, are we talking about a physical sickness or are we talking about spiritual sickness, weakness, discouragement? Which is, is it? Now, let's think about the book of James for a minute. James 1 starts off by saying, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance will have its mature result. That states the theme of this whole epistle. It's endurance, hupomonate, perseverance. Synonyms for that are patience. Earlier in chapter 5, starting in verse 7, we have the following statements. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11, Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job. What do you think the theme of James is? It's endurance. It's perseverance in times of difficulty. Hen said one thing in four and a half chapters about being physically sick, but he has said a heck of a lot about being spiritually discouraged and hanging in there when the going gets tough. So when it comes to James 5.14, I would suggest that the last thing he's thinking about is someone who's physically sick. He's talking about discouragement, spiritual discouragement from testing. This is further exemplified if you look down in verse 15, if we jump ahead just a little bit. It says, And the prayer offered in faith will lift up the one who is sick. What do you think the Greek word is there? Osthenes? Wrong. Wrong. It's the word komno. K-A-M-N-O. Always a smart aleck at every crowd. Comno. You think comno means sick? Comno has nothing to do with sickness. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, or chapter 12, I have one of my favorite verses. Fixing, Hebrews 12 too, Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter, completer of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. What's the theme here? Joy and endurance in times of the tremendous test, the cross. Despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you may what? Not grow weary. Come no. doesn't mean sick, it means weary. So, so we have this terrible translation here. Is anyone among you sick? And then the prayer... Offering faith will restore the one who is sick. Kamno never means sick. It means weary. And that precise word used in verse 15 tells us that the nuance of asthenes in verse, 13, uh, verse 14 is weariness. Is anyone among you spiritually discouraged? Let him call for the elders of the church. Now, earlier in James, in James chapter 2, we're told that we're not to hold our faith in Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal uh, uh, favoritism. For if any man comes into your assembly, and there he uses the word synagogue. Let me suggest to you that James does not have a later New Testament ecclesiology. 
He's talking about the synagogue. He's talking. He's not talking about elders here in the sense of that Paul uses it 20 years later in 1 Timothy. He's talking about spiritually mature believers. He's using it in its everyday sense of the word. The more mature believer. Let him call for the spiritually mature believer in the church and let them pray with him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what in the world does that mean? This is not the practice of what is the final unction of the Catholic Church. This is the passage that they base it on. There are two words in the New Testament in the Greek that are used for anointing. One is our word uh, creo. Creo is the word um, that is the basis for Christos. It's a very technical type of anointing, a spiritual anointing. Uh, Christos, Mashiach. Those are the, the Hebrew word is Mashiach. The Greek word is, is Christos, the anointed one. That has special ceremonial and religious connotations to it. Spiritual connotation. Isn't that word? It's the word alepho. Alepho. We talked about this a little bit the other night when we had David's prayer. He prayed. He's fasting. He's not eating. He is intent on changing God's mind about taking the life of that child. And so he doesn't take a bath. He doesn't shower. He doesn't eat. He doesn't change clothes. He doesn't pay attention to any of his daily functions for seven days. The baby dies. And what does he do? He gets up. He goes and takes a shower. And what does he do? He anoints his body with oil. And I said at that time, that's like getting out the right guard and putting that on, slapping a little aqua valve on your face, putting a little oil in your hair. Remember, they live in a very dry climate, so they would put oil on their skin and oil on their hair as part of their daily uh, toiletry activity. We see another reference to this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 17. I'll turn there and read this verse to you to give you a little flavor of what's going on here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 17. Jesus is contrasting the righteousness of the Pharisees with the righteousness that God expects and the behavior God expects. And he says in verse 16 to get the contrast, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. In other words, keep it between you and the Lord. Nobody else's business. Don't do it for for, uh, the approbation of others. For they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Very similar to the passage where it says, pray in secret. For those who pray in public, they get their own reward. But you, when you fast, what are you supposed to do when you fast? Anoint your head and wash your face. Put oil on your hair. Comb your hair. Don't walk around the street with your hair uncombed and dirty and your face unwashed and, and no deodorant, no aftershave. I had a old master sergeant used to say, no stink and smell good. You want to put that on and you don't want people to know that you're fasting so that you may not be seen fasting by men. The point is that if a person was depressed or discouraged, as we see today, if you've ever been around someone really depressed or discouraged, and they don't feel like getting up in the morning. They don't want to stay in bed all day long. They don't want to go in and take a shower. They don't want to get clean. They may go two or three days where they just don't take care of these things because they're just really down. And so what's happening here? The, the cultural analogy or comparison in James is that when somebody's really down and out spiritually, they need to pray. And, and when the spiritually mature believer comes over and prays for them, he needs to encourage them to get out of bed, go take a walk, take a shower, put on your deodorant, get cleaned up, get out and do something. Don't just sit around and wait for God to zap you with something to happen. And that was how it was used, the concept of anointing Him with oil in the name of the Lord at that time, you're praying for them. And the prayer offered in faith. Now, this is an unconditional promise. When I was a kid, I really relied on this promise. Because in 1952, in July 20-something, I don't remember the date now, I think it was around the 25th or 26th of 1952, my mother contracted all three kinds of polio. She was pregnant with me. She was about six and a half months pregnant with me at the time. She had all three types of polio, encephalitis, hepatitis, a kidney infection, a bladder infection, and about ten days later she had me, two months early. They took, pulled her out of the iron lung, pulled me out and pushed her back in the iron lung. All my life my mother's been in a wheelchair. When I was a little boy I knew God answered prayer. The Bible talks about that you are to pray with the faith of a child. I would pray every night that my mother would walk again. Every single night. My mother's still in a wheelchair. 
My mother never walked. This is an unconditional promise. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. See, this morning, ladies, remember what did I say? And one of the reasons our prayers aren't answered is because we are misapplying a promise. And the promise really isn't saying what we think it's saying. And that's what the case was with me. It's not talking about physical sickness. It's talking about the fact that if a believer is spiritually discouraged and you come in and pray for them, God says, the prayer offered in faith will lift up. It's the same word that we use for salvation, sozo, except here it's not talking about eternal salvation. It's talking about being lifted up. We'll lift up the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Which indicates in the cryptic style of James that sin was a problem somewhere along the ride, and that's what, somewhere along the way, and that's why this guy is depressed and discouraged. And if they're committed sins, he's going to use 1 John 1, 9, and those sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Now, this is so that you may be healed. Now, the issue here is not getting up in front of the church and confessing your sins publicly. Your sins are nobody else's business, but yours and God's. We saw that in Psalm 51. When David prayed, he said, Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, when he says that, he has created havoc throughout his entire kingdom. He's involved Job in his conspiracy to murder Uriah. He has had, Bathsheba, you know, he's had adultery with Bathsheba. He has stolen her from her husband. He's involved his servants in a cover-up. I mean, he's just affected everybody around him in a multitude of ways. But David doesn't go out and confess to everybody, does he? Because it's not their issue. It's God's issue. So what are we talking about in verse 16? We're talking about the fact that when we have certain sins, we need to apologize to other people. There are those sins that we commit, as David did. Now, the confession here is not a confession to get back in fellowship. That Forgiveness has already taken place. God's role has taken place in verse 15. Okay? The person's back in fellowship. When we sin, the issue is between us and God the Father. Because He set the rules, not my next door neighbor, not my wife, not my kids, not anybody else. But there are those sins that do affect them. And I do not just keep plowing right ahead in my life as if, well, God forgave me, so now everything's okay. No, I've done something that's offended them and I need to ask for their forgiveness. I need to apologize. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's what this is talking about. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That's the summary. This is what happens when mature believers, a righteous man here is not talking about someone just positionally righteous because he's a believer, but one who has grown to maturity and is also righteous in his life, living according to God's standards. Then he gives an example from Elijah. And just to kind of conclude this to show that I am on track, in in 1 Kings chapter 17, two episodes happen. One in the first half of the chapter, deals with Elijah's prayer that it would not rain. Second half of the chapter, he's in Zarephath staying with the widow. Her son dies. Elijah lays down on top of him, calls upon God, and resuscitates the individual, the son, and he comes back to life. Now, if you were talking about physical healing, would you, talk, would you use for an illustration the episode in the first half of the chapter that talked about his prayer for it to stop raining, Or if you were talking about physical healing, would you go to the episode where Elijah raises the widow's son from the dead? Which would you use? You would use the second one. But James doesn't. He talks about the fact that Elijah was a man like us and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And Elijah had a tremendous test which we don't have time to go into um, during that time with uh, uh, Ahab, the wicked king, and his persecution of Elijah, and how Elijah had to persevere in times of testing. So it's a perfect illustration of the principle of perseverance in times of discouragement, uh, which Elijah did have later on. And uh, anyway, that's all we have time for on that passage. What are some other things we're to pray for? We're to pray for others that they do not do wrong. 2 Corinthians 13.7 Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we should appear unapproved. We should be praying that others would make good decisions from a position of strength, knowing doctrine, that they not do things that are wrong. Another thing we should pray for is that we should be able to perceive the truth of doctrine so that we can grow to spiritual maturity. Ephesians 1.18 Paul said, I pray that the eyes of your heart, that is this perceptive part of the mentality of the soul, might be enlightened as we know through the filling of the Holy Spirit, 
so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance of the saints. The prayer is that we might understand all that God has given to us as believers, all these incredible spiritual assets, so that we can exploit what God has given us in our pursuit of spiritual maturity. Ephesians 1.18, we need to pray to be able to perceive the truth of doctrine. And then we need to pray that our love might abound and abound in real knowledge. See, the trouble is, most Christians today don't read the second part of that verse. They just want their love to abound. And everybody's going to love one another. It's just sentimental hogwash. Jesus is not some sentimental friend sitting up in heaven. It is love that will abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment with a result. There's a result. Why does your love abound in knowledge? So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be... Notice how he piles result clause on result clause. In order to be sincere and blameless. Spiritual maturity in the day of Christ. That's Philippians 1, 9, 10, and 11. Colossians 1.9 reiterates this. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's not some existential, emotional, subjective Christian experience. It is study, study, study in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Not just so you know a lot, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects. And then production. Notice, knowledge first, then production. Don't go out there, learn your spiritual gift and try, spiritual gift and try to produce so that you can grow. Growth comes first, then production. You, you are filled with the knowledge of His will in verse 9 and you do not bear fruit until the end of verse 10. First you learn, then you do. Don't get caught up in this trap of do, do, do for Jesus so that you can be spiritual. That's legalism. We pray for our ministry to be effective and for the ministry of others to be effective. Colossians 4.3 Praying at the same time for us as well that God may open up to us a door for the Word so that we may speak forth the mystery doctrines of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. Ephesians 6.19 Paul said And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And then finally, we are to pray for ourselves. Luke 22.40, we are to pray that we do not enter into temptation, that we do not yield to temptation. Jesus confronted the disciples and said, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. As we've already seen, we need to pray that we do not worry or become anxious over things. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And we need to pray for a better understanding of Scripture and how to apply it in times of trials. That's the thrust of James 1, 5. I remember trying to pray this, this promise before chemistry final in high school. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Well, that wasn't the kind of wisdom that James had in mind. The verses right before this have to do with count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So the issue here is testing and trials. What are we supposed to do? Pray for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, that is, how to apply doctrine in your particular trial, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You men who are leading the church have some major decisions in front of you. And this is a passage that you need to promise you need to be uh, claiming on a daily basis in your prayers that God would give you wisdom in the midst of these decisions in your leading of the church. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Prayer is not something that's just a nice little spiritual exercise. What we have seen the last three days is the significance that Scripture attaches to prayer. As believers, we are mandated to pray. We're to pray without ceasing. 
we're to devote ourselves exclusively to prayer. And God answers prayer. God tells us that we have not because we ask not. We are to come to God on the basis of the rules of prayer that are given in Scripture. We're to pray to the Father in the name of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know that God hears our prayers and answers us. Sometimes we don't know specifically how to pray. We're to pray that God's will be done in those cases. We're to appeal to God's grace. And we have seen in our study that our prayers are not to be just a personal, private, subjective, emotional experience. But while we may be emotional at the time, our prayers are to focus on the content of Scripture. And we're to let the doctrine of Scripture, the promises of Scripture, stabilize and control our emotions so that we can focus on the eternal truths of Scripture so that we can grow to spiritual maturity, so that we can pray to God for these various requests, rest in Him, relax in Him, so that we can have that sense of stability and peace and calm and tranquility in our souls, no matter what's going on around us, because we know that the Creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them is in control, and that we are in His hands and nothing can take us out of His hands. I'm going to close in prayer, and after I close in prayer, if any of you need to go ahead and leave, you may, but I wanted to give a little time if I had left room for any questions, just to take some questions and answers from the floor, and I'll answer them. Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we do thank You for this great time together. I thank You for this church, for its witness here in this community, for these believers here who desire to glorify You, to grow to spiritual maturity, and who realize that they need to do that by learning doctrine first and then applying it consistently in their lives. And I pray that You would encourage them during this time as they search for a pastor, that You would lift them up, that You would uh, uh, provide for them, and that they would not lose heart or become disheartened as they face various trials and various tests. And Father, we thank You that we have prayer as a very special privilege of our priesthood, that we can come before You expressing all of our desires and our needs and our hopes and our dreams and our frustrations. And we know that You care about us and that You love us deeply and that You have given us all of these magnificent promises in Your Word that You hear us and that You answer us. And we pray this because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen.